Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Matthew 27. And I made an announcement last week that uh, I'm going to be a grandfather. And with that announcement, I just think you're probably going to recognize over the next, it may take you a while, the wisdom, <laughs> the, 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 the weightiness and wisdom that I now possess. As uh, I don't have the gray hairs yet. Um, I guess they're coming. They're a little behind the curve. But um, what hairs I have left will certainly turn gray and then white. And, and then um, you'll see the weightiness. But, you know, with that comes uh, the uh, ever, uh, the realization that I'm, re I'm the ever uh, never-ending point of losing my car keys. Um, as we grow older, you never think about this when you get your license, but there comes a day, hopefully, when your children look at you and say, Mom, Dad, it's time. Uh, you know, it was probably time a year or two ago. Uh, the government tried to tell you uh, the last time you got your license. They tried to warn you, but you weren't listening, and uh, you need to hand over your keys. And, of course, reluctantly, you'll look at them and say, no way, Jose. <laughs> You're not getting these keys from me. You'll pry them out of my dead fingers, uh, which is maybe the case. But, you know, we need help. And I, I realize that this is the case, uh, especially this week. My wife reminded me that this is the case. And now I'm getting a look. I told you this was going to be a sermon illustration. I warned you. Um, um, now, to be fair to her, before I tell you what she did, let me tell you what I did earlier in the year. So you'll see that this is a problem that plagues both of us old people. Uh, uh, I am not, I was not aware, having joined Facebook during COVID, that, that uh, companies from other countries uh, fake advertise. Um, I should have known when I thought I was buying a pair of Alan Edmonds shoes for about 98% uh, off that this wasn't real. <laughs> Uh, I did get my money back for that, but didn't learn my lesson because then I tried to buy a set of golf clubs for about 95% off the retail price. Got my money back for that. So I, uh, my children make fun of me. I will never buy. I, the only lesson I learned is I'm never buying anything on Facebook ever again or from any link from that, any social media site. That's the lesson I learned. That being said, let me tell you what Becky did because that's more fun, right? So we're, we're, uh, uh, we have this little ice cream maker that we bought, uh, and uh, she was going to blend up some oranges for this really, really good orange sherbet that we've been making. Um, and so she had the little, uh, the, the little immersion blender out, and I was sitting uh, in the other room, not facing her, and I hear this loud yell, and I turn around, and she's hopping around the kitchen, and I said, oh, no, what did you do? And she couldn't talk. She was in so much pain. And, of course, I jumped up. Now, I know from 27 years of marriage that when she gets hurt, she does not want you to console her. Don't touch her. Don't talk to her. Just let her be in pain. Some people are like that. Other people, they want lots of hugs. She's the exact opposite. Do not, do not get near me. Let me just be in pain for a while, and then I'll be fine. Well, that's fine. That's her. So I'm looking at her, and when it finally calmed down, I, I said to her, what did you do? What happened? And she said, well, I had the immersion blender, and I was just kind of, and then I just put my hand down underneath the immersion blender, and and, and that little uh, blade cut her finger. And I looked at her and said, 
give me your car keys. <laughs> you, you don't get to drive anymore. You know, we understand as we age, these things happen. But you know, we need help spiritually too. And we all need that kind of help. Doesn't matter your age. Doesn't even matter your age in the Lord. We all need spiritual help. The fact is, we have a sin problem that sometimes gets us into trouble. I don't mean the serious fall off the cliff kind of trouble. I'm talking about um, the day-to-day -day sins that we say so easily beset us. I hope you're not in the middle of the kind of fall off the cliff trouble sins. We still deal with the pull of our sinful nature, even though we have put on the new man created in righteousness and true holiness. We have the capacity to be holy, but not always the will. So we deal with those besetting sins, as the preacher of Hebrews said. We nick our fingers on blenders and jump at clickbait, as it were, injuring our spiritual lives, not fatally, but painfully so. And this all comes from things like selfishness. Anybody struggle with selfishness? Or out-of-control emotions? Or fear? Laziness? Blame-shifting? Worry? A gossipy tongue? You know, these are all simple things, but they're not the biggies, right? At least that's not, not how we think of sin. I mean, we know laziness is a sin, but how often do we repent of laziness before the Lord? In fact, sometimes I think we actually pride ourselves on how little we get done as if that's an achievement in itself. How often do we shift the blame from ourselves to others? I had an accident because the other guy startled me with the way he was driving. How many times have we repented? Lord, I am so sorry I was worried thinking this was outside of your control? You see, friends, these are the tolerable sins. That's what late Christian author Jerry Bridges called respectable sins. He addresses sinful discontentment in chapter 9 of his book. He's not referring to being discontent about spiritual growth or with your walk with the Lord. That's a good discontentment. He writes, he's referring rather to being discontent with seemingly unchanging circumstances Mentioning things like an unfulfilling or low-paying job or singleness even into midlife or an inability to bear children, an unhappy marriage, physical disabilities, or poor health. You keep reading, you come to chapter 14 on impatience. I'm not even going to go there. And look, there's so many of these sins that we tolerate in our lives, we put up with them because they're so common. And I think even as Christians, we've made this little pact with each other, put up with my respectable sins, and I'll try to put up with yours. In fact, I was thinking to myself, we've kind of made this golden rule out of this sin, right? I'll overlook the sins of others as long as, because I want them to overlook my sins, right? As long as you overlook mine, I'll be glad to overlook yours. So we tolerate irritability. And we blame shift by diabetes, right? Or we tolerate thankfulness or thanklessness, rather, and judgmentalism and anger and worldliness. We tolerate those things. But there's a problem. 
Sin is not something that you can tolerate and get by. It always comes with a cost. It has with it a bite, a sting. Put up with your own ingratitude, and it will come back to haunt you. Let your judgmentalism toward others go for any length of time, and it will hurt you and those you are judging. Sin has a price. And friends, it doesn't take returns. You pay every time. And even worse, our sins cost other people too. The sins in our own lives hurt our children, our spouses, our families. It hurts our church family, our neighbors and community. You think about Achan in the book of Judges, or or Joshua rather, who led the families of Israel to mourn their dead soldiers. We overlook that when we read that story. Oh, Achan sinned. He was put to death for his sin. But so were these innocent soldiers of Israel who didn't know about Achan's sin. And all those families, the wives and children, mourning the loss of their dads, their husbands, because they died in judgment on Achan's sin. In fact, if you read the text carefully, In the last moment of Jesus' trial, Matthew's gospel here sheds some light on sins of the people who put Jesus to death. And they're not the sins you would expect. They're not the biggies. They're the little tolerable, respectable ones. We find in our text the some sins, maybe sometimes we don't even think of them as sin. They crucified Jesus. Number one, envy crucified Jesus. The Jewish leaders' jealousy caused them to hand over Jesus to Pilate. You look at verse 15. Here's the the governor. He's wanting to release to the people a prisoner, and he's really hoping it's going to be Jesus. And so he says to them, Whom would I have have I released to you? Barabbas or Jesus? In verse 18, for he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Pilate knew their motives. Political leaders like Pilate often had spies among the people who would constantly inform him of what was going on in the region. And I'm sure he was aware that just days before Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey with the people saying, Hail, King of the Jews. I'm sure he was aware of that. And he offers now to release Jesus because he knows that Jesus' arrest is on a false pretense. And so he offers up Barabbas. Bar-Abbas, son of a father. Some early manuscripts include that Barabbas' given name was also Yeshua, which is why Jesus is called the Christ. Yeshua, that was the Lord's name, Jesus. It was a common name in Israel. It's the same as the Hebrew name Joshua. Uh, origin. Others in the early church believed there was some confusion over who would be released because of the similarity of their names. Do I release Jesus, son of Abbas, or do I release Jesus, the Messiah? And this offer comes because of Pilate's awareness of the jealousy of these religious leaders. Friends, jealousy is a sin. Envy is a sin. Paul includes this 
in the vice list in Romans 1. It comes at the end of the spiral of depravity. It's not at the beginning of the sins. It's at the end of the sins. Refusal to glorify God leads to God giving the people over to uncleanness. The dishonoring of their bodies leads to God giving them up to vile affections. And their gross sin leads to God giving them over to a reprobate mind in which they do all sorts of horrible sins, among which is envy. The sin of jealousy. They're filled with all sorts of sin, including this envy. So Paul tells Titus, it's a sin common to unbelievers in Titus 3. Peter commands Christians to put aside all kinds of sins, including envy. Friends, envy is one of the works of the flesh. Paul places it in Galatians 5.21, right before the sin of murder. I mean, envy? Murder? God says it's pretty important. In other words, yes, it's natural for us to be jealous of others. That's how our flesh is. And in this case here in our story, it's because of Jesus' popularity. They saw Jesus as a threat to their power. I wonder if we struggle with that same sin or if we just tolerate it. Envy, in this case, the envy of the religious leaders led to the crucifixion of Jesus. My friend, do you ever find yourself being jealous of other people? Do you see them as blessed and you as not? Do you envy their success? Do you want what they have? Do you fear them taking something ter- something away from you? And, and if you think about this, can you see how terrible this is? People actually envying, being jealous of each other. It happens all the time. And and, and in fact, Jerry Bridges, in talking about this sin, refers to pastors and people in Christian ministries. He said even himself that he had to deal with envy. He had another writer. He he wrote a bunch of books, Jerry Bridges. Some of you have read The the Pursuit of Holiness, Practice of Godliness. Um, He wrote uh, bestsellers, sold millions of copies. He said there was a woman who had written a bunch of bestsellers just like him, a bunch of Christian uh, bestsellers, uh, but she was getting invitations to speak internationally, and he was not. In fact, he said, I rarely get invited to speak anywhere. Had I known that, if he were still living, I'd invite him to come speak here. That would have been fun. But he said, "I, I really don't get invited to speak anywhere. And he said, in my heart, I was envious of her. And then I started thinking, you know, I hate international travel. I don't like the long lines. I don't like the immigration. I don't like being in places where nobody speaks my language. I hate it. But I'm envious of her. How often we tolerate that sin. Friends, this is one of the sins that caused Jesus to be crucified on the cross. What does it lead to in your case? Not only... Is envy a sin that crucified Jesus? Number two, prejudice crucified Jesus. The Jerusalem crowd was prejudiced against the Galileans. Look at verse 19. When Pilate was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him a message saying, have nothing to do with that just man, that righteous man. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded 
Now look at the, the words, the multitude here. Let's notice how often they're mentioned now. He, they persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said to them, that's the multitude, whether of the two that you would have, I release to you. They said, Barabbas, Pilate said to them, what shall I do with Jesus called the Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. The governor said, and you can almost read in to them, what evil has he done? But they cried out the more. Now, what's causing them to do that? It's the envious elders of Israel who easily persuaded the crowd against Jesus. And the scene now turns to the crowd and Pilate in dialogue. Pilate speaking to the crowd there before his judgment seat. And you notice all those plural pronouns of they and them all and they all and that term multitude. And be aware then that this crowd, it's, it's different from the one that came in with Jesus on Palm Sunday. On that day, Jesus came into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey and all the people are saying, Hosanna, King of the Jews. That's a Galilean crowd. That's a crowd that has followed him from all of his journeys. If you read the book of Luke, at some point in the mid portion of Luke, it says he turned his face toward Jerusalem. And, and Luke really is kind of like a traveling story, even kind of like the book of Acts, Luke's other writing. And you get this traveling story of Jesus, and there's a crowd that's following him to Jerusalem for this feast that's coming. And in that whole uh, traveling crowd, they come in, they worship Jesus. The crowd is filled with Galileans, the disciples of Jesus and other disciples of Jesus. People who had seen and heard his ministry in Galilee, and now they're come for the holiday in Jerusalem. But that's not the crowd in this text. The multitude here, these are homegrown Jerusalem citizens. And they're unaware of Jesus for the most part. They're also very connected to the Sanhedrin, the ruling 70 of the Jews. And these Jerusalem Jews easily turn on Jesus. They have no love for their Messiah King. And so they call for his death. And in particular, they call for the worst death the Romans could give. They want Jesus to be crucified. And I think the reason is, is because something as simple as the Jerusalem Jews had no love for the Galilean Jews. You have to know something a little bit about Hebrew history to understand this. I actually ended up reading an article written in 2015 and published in the Jerusalem Post about anti-Semitism directed toward Galilean Jews. I thought, how modern is this? I can't believe this is something still going on. But you have to understand that the Galileans are not necessarily native Jews. The area was heavily influenced by the Assyrian conquest. Just like the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom in the 8th century BC, when they came in and did that, you remember they took all the people living in the Samaria region, right around the capital of the northern kingdom. They relocated them to other parts of the Assyrian realm, and they bought, brought people from that realm down to the Samaria. Samaria, and they intermarried, that is, the Jews who were left in the area intermarried with the people from other nations, and they formed a new group called the Samaritans. The exact same thing happened in Galilee. The exact same thing. So here is what the writer of the Jerusalem Post argued, that when 
the, the people say, no prophet ever arose from Galilee, they're showing their prejudice. They're likely saying, here's the problem. The people in Galilee, they're not pure-blood Jews. They're half-bloods, just like the Samaritans. Remember, the Galileans also spoke differently. They had different accents and dialects. When Peter denied Jesus, one of the ways he was identified as a Galilean was by the way he spoke. Of course, you remember how he responded to that? He began to curse and swear. He wanted everybody to know he's not a Christian. And I'm going to tell you something, especially you young people. If you want people to know you're not a Christian, just go ahead and curse and swear. Just follow Peter's example. It's a terrible sin. Well, the Galileans, they, they were partially to blame. They were less interested in Judaism than those living near the capital city. In fact, the Jerusalem rabbis would often complain that the Galileans would not come to the festivals as they should they would not listen to the rabbis in Jerusalem as they should. In fact, the Galileans were less Jewish in their customs. And so the Galileans, among all these things, they were even the places where the zealots arose. You remember Judas Iscariot was likely one of these zealots. And at various times, the zealots would try to throw off Roman rule. You remember, some of you who know history, what happened at Masada there at Herod's Herod's uh, fortress, how they actually put themselves in the fortress and made a pact that they would kill themselves before they were taken of the Romans. This happened sometime after the life of Jesus. And all of that caused hardship for the Jews living in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem Jews had no love for the Galilean Jews. And my friends, that's prejudice. And so here's Jesus, a Galilean in their minds, standing before them. And the Jerusalem Jews have no problem saying, let him be crucified. Friends, prejudice is a sin. It's the sin of partiality. James talks about it in James chapter 2. And in James's case, it was the sin of preferring someone over another because that person was wealthy and the other person was poor. But that's not the only partiality you find in Scripture. It's the sin of racism. Remember when Jesus gave the story of the Good Samaritan? In the story of the Good Samaritan, it's the sin of preferring one people group over another because of their ethnicity, or rather rejecting a people group over their ethnicity, over their race. Prejudice prefers our own race, our own ethnicity, our own culture, and we elevate it as if it's right and the others are wrong. It's the sin of a lack of true love. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, Jesus commands us to love others as we love ourselves. But prejudice loves self over others. Ultimately, it's the sin of pride. Christians are commanded to think of themselves as humble and lowly with meekness and patience. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. But prejudice sees self as better than others. My friends, are you prejudiced? Stop for a second. Come on, Pastor. I'm not prejudiced. Do you see your, yourself as better than others because of your financial success or their lack of financial success? 
Do you see your ethnic group as better than another ethnic group? Your cultural heritage as better than another? Your nationality as better than another? Now, this is kind of hard to see in oneself. I'll admit. But I want to tell you that I have these tendencies. After 9-11, I was not calling for the death of all Arab people. I wasn't. But I was shocked to see Arab Americans attacked by other Americans because of their backgrounds. Because they were uh, from, originally, from the Middle East. But I'll admit, I will admit, there was some animosity in my heart for those who killed those 3,000 Americans. And that animosity kind of bled over into people who looked or thought or acted like them. Not talking about their murderous ways, just the way they acted. Did you ever feel like that? Did you feel like that too after 9-11? And then I was saddened to see a, a Sikh man being attacked. You know who the Sikhs are? They, they wear those turbans around their heads. A Sikh man being attacked because people thought he was a Muslim. Sikhs are a completely different religion, not even close to being the same. But people mistook his skin color and clothing for being Muslim. Friends, that's prejudice. That's prejudice. It's as bad as our grandparents hating all Japanese people. I, I love going over to Hayes Barton Cafeteria, uh, right there by the pharmacy across from the church, uh, Hayes Barton Baptist, down at Five Points in Raleigh. They make the best cake. When, when babies come into our fellowship here, I go down there and buy a slice of cake if I can. Uh, and get that to the mom so that, that uh, mom's going to get rewarded with a piece of cake. It's, it's all, I, I feel like that's the least we can do, right? It's just, and it's fun to give them a piece of cake. But if you ever walk into the bathroom there at Hayes Barton, at least the men's room is this way, they, it's kind of a World War II theme, and they have all of these anti-Japanese posters all over the wall. And I thought, you know, if I was a Japanese guy and I walked in here, I'd be going, what? It's just prejudice. You think about the way the people from the north hate the people from the south. And the people from the south hate the people from the north. And that still goes on today. That still happens today. That's prejudice. Here's how you can check yourself. This is just kind of a little formula that I've come up with for myself. I can check myself. Here's what I do. If I wonder what the background or ethnicity is of someone who's committed a crime that I'm reading about in the newspaper and the paper's not reporting it, then I'm probably being prejudiced. You read the story and you're waiting to see what color is this guy? What town is he from? What's his background? Well, that's prejudice. If you fear someone because of their skin color, that's prejudice. When you start referring to people as they and them, making them into a group, well, you've heard about those people. When you speak about it that way, friends, that's prejudice. You likely have some form of prejudice in your heart. Prejudice sent Jesus to the cross. Number three, not only envy and prejudice crucified Jesus, but finally, cowardice crucified Jesus. Cowardice. Pilate took the coward's way out 
in his administration of justice. Look at verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Then answer the people, his blood be on us and our children. So then he released Barabbas. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. Friends, he knew Jesus was innocent. There was no question in his mind. In verse 23, he admits this to be the case. What evil has he done? You tell me, please. I'm still waiting to see. What's his crime? What crime did he commit? Why are we even here? What's going on? And of course, then he says, uh, he's a just man. I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. This one who is, we're not talking here about spiritual or, uh, just, justification. We're talking about ethical righteousness. He, he's not done anything. He, he's fine. He's, he's actually a good citizen. There's no reason to have him put to death. And of course, in verse 15, this led him to want to release Jesus. Pilate didn't want to see Jesus crucified at all. He was aware of what was happening, that it was unjust. And even his wife came to him and warned him that she'd have this dream. And she calls Jesus a righteous man in verse 19. And all of that, no doubt, is from the Lord. God spoke to people in dreams, even those like Pilate's wife. So what does Pilate do? Does he release Jesus like he should? That's the just thing. That in administration of justice, we want our judges to do the lawful thing, to do the right thing. It bothers us when we see people in power get away with crimes that other people would be sent to prison the same for doing, right? We, that bothers us when we say, well, there's two kinds of justice. It, it, it amuses me. When the Republicans say, but the Democrats, and the Democrats say, but the Republicans, and they're all doing it. It's just kind of like a political class. You just kind of, I just read all these stories, and I just go, it just seems like there's two tiers of justice. And, and it bothers you, right? This is the same thing going on here. Jesus is being put to death, but for no crime of his own. It's only because Pilate's a coward. He can't do the right thing. And so now, instead of doing the right thing, he gets out a basin of water. And, and he washes his hands with water. This is a symbolic gesture. In fact, do, do you know it's actually in the Old Testament law? I don't think Pilate knew that. But in Deuteronomy 21, they talk about washing their hands uh, of a situation. We say he washed his hands of it. It, it just means he, he just said, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm not going to handle it. You handle it. I'm just going to let it go. And he washes his hands. It was a show in his mind that he was personally innocent, but he wasn't, was he? What's Pilate's sin? From the very beginning of the story when Pilate is introduced, what is his sin? His sin is simply this. He refused to do the just thing. And what caused him to do that? Oh, they cried out, Whoever is a friend of Jesus is no friend of Caesar's. And Pilate, with his cowardly heart, said, let him be crucified. Pilate is saying, I'm not guilty. And this is why he tells the people to do their will. And this is why they say even, may his blood be on our own heads and on the heads of our children. 
probably something that was judged in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Friends, cowardice is a sin. Cowardice. The lack of courage in the face of difficulty is a human problem. We, we all have cowardly instincts sometimes. We'd like to think we're all courageous all the time, but we're not. You, you remember some of the greatest heroes of the faith had problems with being cowardly. Joshua was repeatedly commanded, be strong and of a good courage. Re read the first few chapters of Joshua. See how many times God has to remind him, be strong, I'm with you. This book of the law is with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be there with you. Why do you think he's saying that? Moses is dead. Joshua has been following Moses around all of a sudden. Now Joshua's in charge and it's, oh no, I'm in trouble now. The people are going to be angry at me now. I'm, I'm responsible now. And he lacked, lacked courage. Timothy had a problem with timidity. In 2 Timothy, he's told not to fear in chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8. He's told to be strong in chapter 2 and verse 1. He's encouraged about suffering for Christ in chapter 2 and verse 12. He's reminded of Paul's sufferings in chapter 3 and verse 11 and 12. And he's reminded that the Christian life is a fight. It's a battle. It's a war. In chapter 4 and verse 7, Timothy was timid. Paul says, don't be ashamed of me or the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the fact that I'm a prisoner, but be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Timothy didn't want to go through that. Timothy and Joshua aren't alone. What about Peter? He's standing in the judgment hall there with the Sanhedrin at the high priest's residence out in the courtyard and he's warming his hands over a fire. And somebody says, you were with him. You look familiar. I think you cut the ear off of one of my relatives. Uh, it wasn't me. I don't know that man. And then he hears the rooster crow. And of course, then he does it again. Someone else says, no, I'm pretty sure you were with him. Uh, it wasn't me. Even a little girl says, you sound like you're with him. I think you probably are. No, that's not me. What's Peter doing? He's just being a coward. He had just said to Jesus the day before, if you even go to your death, I will go to death with you. And now that opportunity has arisen. Maybe he didn't think that was going to happen, but now it's arisen. And now he's saying, no, no, no. I don't want to die. I don't want to be put to death like Jesus. And he's a coward. John includes cowardice in his sin list in Revelation 21 and verse 8. When he's talking about all of the people who will not be in the heavenly kingdom, includes among them, well, the King James says the fearful, but modern translations put it in a, in a more modern way, the cowardly. And my friends, are you a coward for Christ? Do you lack courage for Jesus? Do you fear standing up for your faith because of what people might think of you? Do you hold your tongue when Jesus is blasphemed in public? Do, why do, especially on social media, why do the wicked get to say all sorts of wickedness but Christians don't stand up for Christ? Why? I'm not saying you have to be mean about it. But you can say, hey, that's not what I believe. That goes against my faith. Why is it when we hear people blaspheme the name of Jesus, 
Are we so afraid of offending them? They've offended me. Their words are an offense to a holy God. Do we fail to share our faith with people even when you know the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do it? And are you feel fearful of where God's will is leading you? Where God wants you to go? You see, friends, that's all cowardice. When I was in the military, we were doing a training exercise and all it meant, nobody had any bullets. They were all blanks. We had these helmets and on our helmets, we had these little laser tag kind of, it was back when laser tag was brand new. This was cutting edge technology. We had these little uh, plastic pieces on our helmets that had a little spot in the middle where if you, if you aimed right there and you could fire your little laser on the top of your rifle, you could get it to go off. We had, we had a little thing around our chest. We had the same thing. In fact, I'll never forget a guy we used to call the Apostle Paul. Uh, his name was Paul, and he had a habit of yelling out in the middle of formation, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He would just yell it out when we were supposed to be at attention. Didn't help us, really, because uh, it was weird. Um, I would say to him, Paul, you're hurting the cause, not helping. I remember we were all there that day, and Paul was walking down with my friend Steve, and they were walking down. I saw him coming down a pathway, a rock gravel pathway, uh, and, and in the middle of the woods, and and Paul is saying to Steve, I'm sorry, Steve. I'm sorry, Steve. I'm sorry, uh, Sergeant. Uh, I'm so sorry. And they're both sergeants, but they were, I'm sorry. He, it was the beginning of the war games. It had just started, and, and, he, and Paul had shot his own man, Steve, and his little thing goes off, and that means you're out. Uh, and he was out for the rest of the, you know, day and a half. He just got to sit in a tent. Didn't even get to do anything. But I remember standing there at night inside my foxhole, and I, I have a weapon that doesn't kill anybody. I, I, I'm, wearing, I'm wearing gear that is of no consequence. And there are people coming in on my position. I know they're attacking. And I'm going to tell you, I looked into that darkness, and I felt fear in my heart. And I started asking myself, am I a coward? Well, what if this was real? Well, I got to find out about a year later what it's like to look into the blackness and know that there really is an enemy who wants to shoot you dead. But I'm going to tell you something, friends. We live in a Christian war, a Christian war. And we have an enemy who wants to shoot us dead, spiritually speaking. Do you look into your culture, and are you a coward for Christ? Cowardice put Jesus on the cross. These, are, these aren't the biggies. Envy, prejudice, cowardice. But taken together, they crucified Jesus. What sin is in your life that put Jesus on the cross? Let's pray. Lord, Help us now to reflect upon this story and to realize that this is who we are. We're like this. We are so often envious of others and, or, or we're cowardly. And we can even be prejudiced, Lord. Help us not to do that. Teach us to repent of it and turn from it and be different so that we can show Christ to this world. We can be a beacon on a hill broadcasting the light of the gospel to everyone, not just a few. Before I finish praying, how many of you say, you know, pastor, as we're preaching, maybe it's not even the sin list, the three sins I mentioned here, 
but maybe there's something in your life that God's Spirit was speaking to you about. Something totally unrelated, maybe. But now you see how serious all sin can be because you see these little sins that put Jesus on the cross. How many of you say, Pastor, the Spirit of God was speaking to me? Would you raise your hand and let me pray for you? Yes, brother. Yes, sir. Yes, brother. Yes. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Who else? Pastor, pray for me. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. Maybe it is one of these things. Maybe we just need to do some real examination of our own hearts. That we're not envious of other people's success. Or prejudiced or cowardly. Anybody else, Pastor, pray for me? I want to pray for you. Lord, you, you see the response here today. You know that we struggle with these things. I struggle with them. Help us, Lord, as your people to do your will, to, to be courageous. Lord, to, to be content. Lord, to, to be fair. Help us to be that way. Help us, Lord, to see that these other things are wrong. And when we're like that, help us to repent immediately and change. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist is going to play a hymn of invitation. Please go to the Lord as she plays.